blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and you are strong. We are lifeless apart from you and you are the fountain of all life. We are unsatisfied in ourselves and in this world and you are the great giver of satisfaction. You are the source of all goodness and joy. Your word is bread. You tell us Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now, we pray, on the bread of life and give us a greater appetite for it. May we hunger and thirst for the bread of life, for the Spirit of God poured out into our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder what you expect from Jesus. What do you expect from him? And you're here at church listening to this sermon, so you must expect something. This morning, we'll see from John 6 that one of the most common mistakes is to expect everything from Jesus in this life without realizing all he offers us for the life to come. Or maybe better, we seek him more for what he gives than for who he is. The point of John 6, 22 to 71, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 6, is that we must trust Jesus for who he says he is. The temptation of all of the crowds in John 6 is to trust Jesus for who he is not for who they want him to be, for who they demand him to be. And Jesus calls them out on that. He says, no, you must trust me for who I say I am, not for who you say you think I should be. And here we see seven facets of saving faith. Seven facets of saving faith. So we'll read the text piecemeal as we go. And as we see these seven facets, since it's a longer text, seven facets of saving faith. All the while, we need to be reminded that we must trust Jesus for who he says he is. We'll start in verses 22 to 29. On the next day, the very day after he had multiplied bread and fish for the 5,000, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone without Jesus. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So lots of seekers find Jesus here in verses 22 to 29. But what do they do with him once they find him? This leads us to meditate on the first facet of faith, the goal of faith, the goal of faith. First point of the sermon, first facet of faith, the goal of faith. They keep trying to co-opt him. What I mean by that is they're trying to hijack his power for their agenda. Like a cop commandeering a civilian car. You're chasing the American dream, but you're doing it on foot. You can't keep up with that dream. So here comes Jesus, like a supercharged Hemi, and you try to commandeer him to speed up your pursuit of your dream. That's co-opting Jesus, hijacking him and his power for whatever purposes you want to apply his power to. For whatever you're chasing in this life, whatever bread that is. And Jesus calls you out on that, like he does the crowds in verse 26. You are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The sense is, your goal in seeking me is doubly inferior because you seek me only for your physical appetites and this worldly agendas, not even to be wowed by the signs that I'm doing, not even to kind of gawk at miracles, not even to kind of rubberneck at what I'm doing to prove that I'm the Son of God. You're not even seeking me for that much less for what those signs signify about who I really am and what I will do for you if you take me at my word on my own terms. To seek Jesus for this worldly appetites and agendas is to seek self, not Jesus. You're working for the wrong kind of food, Jesus says. Don't work for the food that rots. It doesn't necessarily mean quit your job, though maybe that's necessary in your case. I don't know. He means rearrange your priorities around the food that endures to eternal life. Which the Son of Man, Jesus, will give you. Have you done that? Does that describe your life? Does your life center on getting the bread of life? Jesus says to this crowd, you are too preoccupied with what I can do for you in this temporary life when I came here to give you eternal blessing in the next life. You're chasing me around the lake for bread. And I came to get you to heaven and to give you an eternal quality of life now even before you get there. Sinner, Jesus wants to give you something bigger and better than anything you are asking him for in this life. If you are only asking him to satisfy your appetite and accomplish your agenda in this life, you're wasting Jesus. 
He wants to give you a better, different appetite for a better, different agenda. Eternal life. He says, work for that bread. Edward Pierce was a preacher in London who died in 1673, and on his deathbed he wrote a book called The Great Concern, Preparation for Death, as he was dying. And he said this, if you are taking a journey through a few miles to make a voyage to a strange land, you're concerned to have all things ready. You're making a vo- but you are making a voyage out of time into eternity. You are launching forth into the great ocean. And what? Nothing in order? Nothing ready? Nothing set aright? How many of us may complain as with that holy man, St. Bernard, when he once said, I am ashamed to live because I am so unprofitable and I am afraid to die because I am so unprepared. Work for the bread that remains to eternal life. How do you do that? It's not a secret. It's not rocket science. It's not complex. J.C. Ryle says, by reading our Bibles, wrestling earnestly in prayer, taking our whole heart to the house of God, fighting daily against sin, things that you hear very regularly, things you know to do. And this is why we encourage and exhort you to make the most of all the means of grace, both private and public, both individual and corporate. That's us urging you, work for the food that endures to eternal life. Work for it. Prioritize that. Give energy to that. Order your life around that. This is also why we are not a seeker-sensitive church in the modern kind of technical meaning of that term. Do we want to encourage people to seek Jesus? Of course we do. But we want them to seek Jesus for the right goals. Do we want to live seeker-sensitive lives? Of course we do, in the sense that we should always be ready with an answer for the hope that we have within us to testify to Jesus' divinity, His grace and compassion for us in our helplessness and our sins, His extreme self-denial and dying in our place as the penalty for our sins, His power and righteousness and rising from the dead, His call to us to change our minds about our sins and to trust in Him to be reconciled to God. But for us to conduct our life as a church so as to encourage them to seek Jesus for this worldly aims, like purpose or success, or self-esteem, that misguides people to seek Jesus for the wrong kind of bread. J.C. Ryle said, How little the reason of many people for coming to public worship would bear examination. Would your reason for coming here bear examination? By God, why are you here? Augustine said, how seldom Jesus is sought 
for the sake of Jesus. Jesus rebuked these seekers for following him as if he were a meal ticket or a political ticket. You see that? Jesus rebukes people who were seeking him. He said, you're not, you're not seeking me for the right reason, for the right goal. You just want what you wanted before I met you. And now you think you can hijack me to get what you wanted before you ever knew me. That's not why I came. I'm not going to relate to you like that, Jesus said. He is not a life coach or a therapist or a social worker. He didn't come to make our life in this world easier or to solve world hunger. I mean, he could have solved world hunger this day in John 6 if that were his goal. He didn't come for any reasons, in fact, that appeal to your flesh, your sinful nature. He didn't come for any of that. He came to give you life in the next world, even if you lose your life in this one. So, give us this day our daily bread? Of course, yes, pray it. Jesus taught you to pray that prayer. But which bread gets the best of you? That's Jesus' question. Which bread are you working hardest to eat? Work for, pursue, prioritize, organize your whole life around getting the food that remains to eternal life. The Word of God, Jesus Himself. Is the bread of life the most important thing to you? If someone else looked at your life and your priorities, the way you arrange your time, your money, your energy, your relationships, would they say, this guy is about something that's not even in this world. This, this woman loves eternal life more than she loves this life and the things that she can have in it. Is the bread of life the most important thing to you, or do you crave financial bread as the dominant appetite of your life? Which bread gets the best of your heart, your energy, your priorities, your time, your relationships? Which bread tastes better to you when you eat it? Which bread are you most glad to get? The bread that fills your soul or the bread that fills your wallet? Which bread do you talk most about, think most about, want most, trust most, strategize to get most? Which bread makes you change your schedule? Which bread is the dominant appetite of your heart? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other breads will be added to you. But seek first, work for the bread of life. Now they ask, 
What are the works of God? Plural. Jesus answers with a singular work to trust in the one whom God has sent. To believe is not just to be aware of facts or to agree with them. It's to trust a person. When I can ask directions from the loop to Wrigley Field or I can get into a taxi and trust the driver to get me there. That's the difference. I don't just agree on what I need to do to get myself to heaven. I trust in someone else, Jesus, to get me to heaven by his knowledge, his goodness, his power, his authority. And that kind of faith repents. In other words, I change my mind. That's what the whole word repent means. I change my mind about my sin about how I relate to God, about my own ability to get myself to heaven by my good works. I changed my mind about my own ability to please God. I forsake, I renounce my self-reliance, and I rely totally on Jesus' goodness to get me reconciliation to God. I forsake my own stubborn way. I trust Jesus that he knows the way instead. I follow him by listening to him and learning from him in Scripture instead of trying to listen to the world. So when we say repent, that's what we mean. I forsake my old ways of sinning and relying on myself. I change my mind about reality, sin, righteousness, God, judgment, law, Gospel, the Bible, everything. I turn around. I do a 180. And instead of walking towards my sin in relying on myself and my own whatever common sense or my own assumptions about who God is or who I think he should be, I turn around and say, God, you tell me. You tell me what to think. You tell me how to live. You tell me how I should feel. You tell me what kind of bread I should be more hungry for. You tell me what to want. That's repentance. It's changing why I pursue Jesus in the first place. What do I think I'm going to get from him? What is the goal of my faith? It should be Jesus himself, getting Jesus, knowing him, loving him, serving him being changed by him, becoming more like him, relying on him. Second, the object of faith. The object of faith in verses 30 to 34. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? He has just said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He told them, this is what you should be working for. This is the work of God. Believe in me. So they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Well, you sure get the feeling that they are talking right past each other, don't you? 
I mean, the irony is really thick here. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work? Well, that's rich. We're still in John 6. He just fed the 5,000 literally yesterday. And what they think they need is a sign. What's more, he told them, Jesus told them, work for the bread of eternal life. And they pushed the burden of proof back on him to work a work of giving more temporal bread so that they can see and therefore believe. That's what they want him to do. What work do you do? Do it again. Do it today like you did it yesterday. Prove it to us. And the irony thickens in verse 31 where they quote Exodus 16. The crowds are quoting the Bible to Jesus. Oh, that's, that's good. They're quoting Moses and the manna to Jesus, yet they don't see how Jesus relates to the manna. They are only comparing Jesus to Moses. You see? When Jesus compares Jesus to the manna, Jesus is not Moses from earth. Jesus is the manna from heaven. He's telling them, you're not quoting it right in applying it to me. Let me tell you how Moses and the manna relate to me. I'm the manna. I'm not Moses. They're saying, prove yourself to us as they think Moses proved himself to the Old Testament fathers. Prove that we should follow you. I mean, they're even misreading Moses. But while these Jews demand signs, Christ preaches Christ crucified. He doesn't give them the sign they want. In verse 32, Moses wasn't even the one to give you that bread from heaven in the sense of the manna in the first place. God did that for them. But the point is not simply that God gave the manna, not Moses. He's not just telling them what God did or who, who did what in the past. The comparison is between what Moses has not given and never given and what God is now giving. It's not Moses that has given bread from heaven either then or now, whether physically or spiritually. Physically, the manna didn't keep the fathers from dying in the wilderness. And spiritually, the law of Moses as a Jewish way of relating to God, as a legal way of relating to God, still has never given anyone eternal life. The law's challenge, do this and live, cannot give life because no one can do the this of the law in order to earn eternal life by their own obedience. No one but Jesus. And therefore, no one can live before God or get eternal life with God based on how well they obey the law for themselves. Moses has not given
Moses is not given life to the Jews physically or spiritually. Rather, it is Jesus' Father, God himself, who now gives the true bread from heaven by sending Jesus to live and die in the flesh, to obey the law's commands and endure the law's curse for all who would turn from their sin, repent, and trust in Jesus for right standing with God. So Christ crucified is the true object of faith. Not Moses, not the law, not even the things in this life that Christ can give you. Christ crucified is the object of your faith. It's what you place your faith in. One verse 34, they say something that sounds really good. Sir, evermore, give to us this bread. But the rest of the conversation proves that they're still asking for the wrong kind of bread. They're saying, do another bread miracle like you did yesterday. Give us the sign we started out demanding in verse 30. We're not coming off that. I don't know what you're talking about, but just do what we want you to do again like you did it yesterday. Outdo Moses. Do it on demand, and we will trust you, but for what? For more free bread. They're not learning in this conversation with Jesus, are they? They're not learning. They're hearing, but they're not listening because their opinion is not changing. They're still holding on to their own assumptions about who they think Jesus should be for them and for everybody. But they're not listening to what Jesus says he is for those who will trust him and take him at his word. Contrary to their own assumptions about who they think he should be. They're still answering Jesus based on their own expectations and based on their own criteria, based on their own reason, not based on what Jesus means by what he says. They have made no progress towards the truth. Now look at that. Look at that. You can be face-to-face with Jesus. You can have a personal conversation with Jesus and get nowhere. Because you're not changing your mind about who he is and what he says about himself. You're still trying to operate and relate to him based on your assumption and your expectation of what you think he should be and do. And Jesus doesn't relate to you like that. He did not come here to meet your expectations of him. He came here to change your expectations and your assumptions. And yet, look at this. This is so patient of Jesus. Jesus bears with them, doesn't he? He still offers them the comfort of faith if they will only believe on him rightly. And that leads us to our third point, the comfort of faith. The comfort of faith in verses 35 to 40 of chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the comfort of faith. And he's still offering it to these stubborn people who are not giving up their own opinions yet. And this comfort of faith is twofold. It is a comfort in the first instance of satisfaction. A comfort of satisfaction. Jesus tells them, I'm the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. Bread satisfies appetite. And in that way, it's comforting. (laughs) Bread is comfort food. It was a necessary staple in the Middle East, like water. But it tastes good. It satisfies. And that's what Jesus says he himself is for our souls. And that is why we should be seeking him, not merely for the comfort of our bodies and bank accounts and businesses in this life, but for the comfort of our souls in eternity to come. The crowd came to Jesus in a sense, didn't they? They come to Jesus geographically. Just like many people come to church spatially. You're here bodily. But these people refuse to come to Jesus in personal reliance on Jesus for what to think about him and what to depend on him for. They want him for bread in this life, not for eternal life. And yet Jesus is so kind and patient, he's still willing to satisfy their souls if they will only learn from him and trust in him for who he is and what he says. And stop thinking that they know how to tell him who to be and what to do. And sadly, they are not willing to give that up. And Jesus called them out on it in verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Seeing is not believing. This is Jesus' reply to their demand to see another sign in verse 30. What sign do you do in order that we may see and believe? They just said that. And now Jesus is saying to them, you have seen. You're seeing right now. And you don't believe. According to Jesus, seeing is not believing. They have seen, and they don't believe. All they want to do is see again. The issue of unbelief, then, is not a lack of proof on Jesus' part. That's not why you don't believe in Jesus, sinner. It's a lack of power and will on our part to even consider who Jesus is in himself, according to his word, not according to yours and mine. Yet that unbelief doesn't make the gospel of Jesus any less true for anyone. That's what verse 37 means in context. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Yeah, you've seen and you haven't believed, 
But that doesn't change the truth of who I am for everyone else who does believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is the comfort of sovereign security. So we had comfort as satisfaction, and now we have comfort as security. Even if the crowd see Jesus' signs and still refuse to believe, their unbelief doesn't make Jesus any less of a trustworthy Savior for anyone else who will believe in Him. So basically, you may not believe, but others will. Jesus is not deterred by your skepticism or unbelief. The unbelief of many cannot and will not prevent the faith and salvation of some. Why is that true? Because the Father has sovereignly given a set of people to the Son for the Son to save. That's why, according to Jesus. The Father gave me people to save. And I will save those people. It will happen. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter if you believe that or not. That's going to happen. But you should believe it so that you're one of those people. Whoever comes to Jesus with that kind of faith, Jesus will never refuse, exclude, or lose. This is where we get the idea of what theologians call the covenant of grace. That in eternity past, before the world ever began, the Father gave to the Son a group of people for the Son to save, and all those the Father gave to the Son go to the Son. And when they go to the Son, the Son gets them, keeps them, and never lets them go. So Christian, your faith in Jesus is the evidence of your election in the Father. Otherwise, you would never have faith. You don't choose Jesus first. God chooses you. That's why you choose. That's how sinful we are. That's how rebellious we are against God. And that means, though, that you are doubly secure. Not only in the Father's will, because it's the Father's will to save His people, but in the Son's will to accomplish the Father's will for every single person who will ever trust in Jesus to save them from the power and penalty of their sins. You're doubly secure as a Christian. It's the Father's will to give you to the Son, and it's the Son's will to keep you for the Father. And your faith is the evidence of that. Your faith in Jesus. It doesn't get any more comforting than that. Because that is sovereign security for eternal life and salvation in God the Father and in God the Son. Now, sinner, don't get tripped up here. If you are convicted of your sin and unbelief now, and if you want more than anything to be one that God has given to Jesus to save, and you know that's not true of you now, because you don't believe yet, but you're starting to want to believe, and you're convicted, man, this should be true of me, and it's not, and God is holy, and I am not, I'm sinful, and I've rebelled, and God sends people to hell who act and think like me, and he sent Jesus to die on the cross as the penalty for all those who ever repent and believe, and I want to repent, I want to turn from my sins, I want to trust in Jesus, but what if I'm not elect? Wrong question. 
Wrong question. Don't go there. That's not something that God has revealed in his word. If this is you, don't get hung up worrying about whether you're elect or not. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches you try to discern whether you're elect. Before you believe, no, 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 no. That's prying into hidden things. What you should do is simply confirm your election by trusting in Jesus and turning from your sin and self-reliance so that Jesus will save you from the power and penalty of your sins. Right? In other words, if you're not a Christian and you're afraid, oh, what if God didn't choose me? Well, have faith in Jesus and you will prove that God did choose you. That's the proof. That's the evidence. You believe. You trust. You love. You obey. You come to Jesus. You rely on Him. You agree with Him. You trust in Him and on Him. Listen again to this wonderful promise from Jesus. This is what Jesus wants you to trust. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what he wants you to bank on. He doesn't want you doubting, well, what if, Jesus, what if God didn't choose me? He wants you to bank on his promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what you should trust. He is willing to save anyone who will trust in his death as their substitute to save them from God's wrath at them over their sins. In fact, Jesus is more willing to save these people in John 6 than they are willing for him to save them. The offer is still good for them in John 6, and they refuse it. So again, this is sovereign security of faith in Jesus. If we believe God is holy and His law is righteous, if we believe that we are sinful rebels against God's love and law, if we trust in Jesus' death as God's ordained substitute to endure God's wrath over all of our sins and save us from hell, if we repent, if we change our minds about our sins, turn away from them, then the only reason any sinner believes this stuff is because God wants us to. And if we trust in Jesus, then Jesus will never let us go. Because he knows it is his Father's will and desire for him to receive all those who come to him. It's his Father's will that he keep us and to save us to the uttermost. And Jesus always does what his Father wants him to do. This lockstep agreement of the Father and the Son settles the security of our salvation in Jesus for all who trust him. The Father wills it. The Son willingly accomplishes it. The Spirit applies all this to our hearts. Each person of the Trinity, then, is happily agreed and willingly engaged in our salvation when we trust in Christ. And therefore, you, believer in Christ, are secure in your salvation in Christ. And if you are considering whether or not to believe in Christ, you can be that secure, too. You have God's Word on it. When you come to die, you will be one of those whom Jesus promises, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's about you, Christian. That comfort, that satisfaction, that security 
That's yours now if you trust in Christ. So don't waste it. Taste it. Taste and see that God is good to you in giving you the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And yet the crowd who first heard this promise directly from Jesus' own lips would not taste it. They would waste it. Fourth point, the impossibility of faith. The impossibility of faith. Jesus just promised sovereign security of eternal life in him. What's the next thing we read in verse 41? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He gives them this great promise. What do they do with it? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And the next thing you read, the next thing out of their lips is, so they grumbled about it. Wow. Sinner, hearer of God's Word, make sure that's not you. Grumbling about what Jesus says about Himself when He has promised you eternal life. Are you kidding? Are you doing that? Are you objecting even to the very truths of John 6? As Jesus is preaching them to you for your hope of eternal salvation? So they grumbled about it. Are these not the truths that we ourselves find difficult? They grumbled about him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. They literally cannot believe that Jesus came down from heaven. And yet what John wants you to see in this paragraph, in this exchange, in this conversation, is that what is most unbelievable is unbelief itself. He's showing you this scene, and he's saying, can you believe this? Can you believe this unbelief? Can you believe that people refuse to take Jesus at his word when it cuts against their own assumptions and expectations of who he is and ought to be? But what do they base their rejection on? What do they base their refusal to believe on? What they know. Oh, we know. Oh, you do. You know, you know who you think Jesus ought to be? You know that? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
I know you, Jesus. That's, that's their attitude. <laughs> you can't say you come down from heaven. I know, I know where you live. I know your daddy. And Jesus said, no, you don't. Or you would believe in me. The Jews, you see this? The Jews think they have all the logic on their side. They think they have scripture on their side. They're totally convinced that they are obviously right about Jesus, and Jesus is obviously wrong about himself, supremely confident and wrong. And is this not exactly how people reason about Jesus today? Isn't Jesus just... Isn't Jesus supposed to... I thought Jesus was, surely science has proven, therefore I do not believe. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You think the Bible isn't relevant to you? John 6 is hitting pretty close to home for you, for all of us. But that word for grumbling and their reason for grumbling is reminiscent of their Old Testament fathers grumbling before the manna in Exodus 16 and their grumbling about the manna itself in Numbers 11 after they've been eating it for a long time, longer than they wanted to eat it. Numbers 11.1, 1, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Cost you nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Bread. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Yuck! Tired of it. Gross. They're angry. They're grumbling. Like fathers, like sons. Here in John 6, the crowds in John 6 prefer physical, financial, political bread to the bread of life. And so do many modern professing Christians. But in verse 43, Jesus keeps pleading with them, do not grumble with one another. The idea and context of verses 26 to 40 is don't grumble among yourselves that I am not who you thought I was. Don't grumble because Jesus didn't come to pacify your appetite or promote your agenda or meet your expectations of what you think a Savior ought to be. But here again, Verse 44, as in verse 37, Jesus falls back on the will of his Father and who believes in him and who does not. No one is able to come to me except the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The reason they don't believe is because they're unable. You know what the word unable means in Greek? It means to be unable. There's no secret of meaning here. They cannot They don't have the power to do it. They literally cannot believe it that Jesus is the eternal preexistent Son of God come down from heaven to take human flesh so that he can live a sinless life and die an undeserved death in our place for our sins and be raised from the dead bodily for our justification. They cannot and will not believe that on their own. It's offensive to them. They think they're the wise ones, but they're the fools. They're unable to believe, Jesus says, unless the Father draws them. That's how bad Jesus says our situation is. 
We are dead in our sins, totally unresponsive to God, His Word, or His Son. We love sin, and we are unwilling to come to Jesus for salvation. You know, sometimes uh, my, my children, <laughs> I felt this the other day. I haven't even told my wife this. This is hilarious. I was out doing errands the other day. I was at Ace Hardware. I, I was going from Walmart to Ace Hardware. And in between going to Walmart and Ace Hardware, Liam, my three-year-old, fell asleep. He fell asleep in the car because he hadn't had a nap. So I wake him up to go into Ace Hardware because, of course, I'm not going to leave him in the car like my flesh wanted to for my own convenience. But no, that, you know, that's bad parenting. So I get him up. And so he had not had a walk. I put him on my shoulders, right? I put him on my shoulders. <laughs> and he's like falling asleep on my shoulders like dead weight. You ever try to pull somebody who's dead weight? You're doing all the work, ain't you? I could feel him. Like, like I had to keep him balanced or else he would fall asleep and fall over. Yeah, you are not able to believe unless the Father draws you because you're dead in your sins. You're dead weight spiritually. So you don't just decide based on available opinions and options which religion to believe in, like you would convert to Islam or Hinduism. You can convert to those just fine. Just change your opinion. Start new habits. But people simply cannot and will not believe in Jesus unless God the Father draws them into it. That's not a comment on God's unfairness. That's a comment on your deadness and your stubbornness and your sin and your commitment to it. Don't criticize God because he doesn't draw every single person without exception. Criticize yourself. Criticize us. Criticize humanity for our deadness and our voluntary slavery to our own sin. And praise God that he saves anybody at all. This is why Jesus mentions Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31 here in verse 45. They will all be taught of God. If people are dead in their sins, unable and unwilling to trust in God, they're going to be saved. God's going to have to make it happen. They're all going to have to, have to be taught of him. And when God teaches anyone to trust Jesus in their heart, they will come to Jesus in faith. No exceptions. Spurgeon had a great illustration of this. He said, if, we were, if, I, were able, if I were to see a needle, a metal needle, Running across a table all by itself, I should know that under the table a magnet was at work out of sight to move that needle. When I see a sinner running after Christ, I feel certain that divine love is drawing him. The cords may be invisible, but we are quite sure that they are there. The desire for grace is caused by the very grace which we desire. That's the hopefulness of needing to be drawn to faith in Christ by God. If you are being drawn to faith in Christ, it's because God is the one drawing you. That's wonderful. That's hopeful. You shouldn't doubt that. You should trust it. And you should be brokenhearted that God's doing that for you. So Christian, even the impossibility of faith is a comfort to those who have faith in Jesus. Since it would be impossible for you to have faith in Jesus if God the Father did not draw you to faith in Jesus. You see? It's hopeful. You're not, you're not having faith in Jesus and then hoping, oh, I hope this is good enough for God. No, no, no. You have faith in Jesus because God is the one who drew you out in that very faith. It's wonderful. It's a comfort. 
And when God effectively draws you to that faith, that faith itself becomes effective for eternal life. That's the fifth point, the effectiveness of faith. The effectiveness of faith in verses 47 to 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The effectiveness of faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Already now, Jesus solemnly confirms that whoever trusts in him for who he is and what he will do has already presently eternal life. And in verse 48, the image of how to get eternal life is eating Jesus. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, I am the bread, that comes down from heaven because I pre-existed as the eternal, eternally existent Son of God so that one may eat of it, eat of me, and not die. Eating Jesus is a metaphor for trusting Jesus, ingesting him, enjoying him, living on him continually. Jesus is like bread that has the supernatural ability to sustain not just a new duration, but a new quality of life, eternal life. Eating the meaning of Jesus' person and work, believing it, accepting it, nourishes your soul to eternal life. Not just once. You don't just eat bread once and be like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm ready to die. No. You've got to eat every day. In verse 50, you eat Jesus as bread from heaven, and even if your body dies physically, your soul will live to God in blessedness now while you still live on this earth, and you will live on in blessedness with God in heaven after your body dies. You will never die in the sense that you will never be separated from God's blessedness himself as the source of all life. Jesus will reconcile you to the very God that you had sinned and rebelled against. And that God will fill your soul in a way that your job and your money and your marriage and your relationships or the potential of marriage can never fill. Because he is true bread. Verse 51, Jesus keeps doubling down on his identity as the bread of life, which is what the Jews are so offended by as to grumble in verse 41. I'm the bread of life who comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And right now is where it gets difficult. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Right there, Jesus is talking about giving his physical body on the Christ cross to die as the blood sacrifice to pay the penalty for all the sins of everybody who will ever turn from their sins and trust in him. His body is the bread of life. You trust in his physical death on the cross as the penalty you deserve to pay for your sins. And that trust is like eating bread that has eternally life-giving power. And that is necessary. It is not an option. It's necessary. That's our sixth point, the necessity of faith. 
verses 52 to 59, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So just like Nicodemus, now these Jews take Jesus literally. How can this guy give us his body to eat? This is ridiculous. It's a gross cannibalism. But Jesus doubles down again on the necessity of faith in his death in verse 53. Unless, I, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You do not have life in yourselves. Now, that is some tough teaching. Talk about speaking a whole different language of faith. You know what we would call that today? I had a conversation with one of you about that this week. That's some real Christianese, isn't it? I mean, that is some crazy Christianese right there. Whoa. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man? Drink his blood? What? How do you expect to build a church on that? What in the world are they supposed to make of that? But Jesus is teaching them as if they should understand it and believe it. After all, he's just going off their reference to the bread of heaven back in verse 31. Still a lot of people here in John 6 did not get it even when it is Jesus himself teaching them. He's putting it in their imagery, simplifying it for them. Here, I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you an illustration, bread. I'll work with the illustration you gave me, bread, bread from heaven. And still, nothing. They misunderstand him so badly, in fact, that they're offended. In verse 54, though, he keeps going with this offensive language all the way to verse 57. Here, eating Jesus' flesh and blood is the way you remain in him. You stay in him. You keep eating. You keep drinking. You keep feeding. You keep meditating. You keep reading. You keep being changed and nourished and filled with him. This is the bread equivalent of abide in the vine. Stay. Keep eating. He's teaching the doctrine and practice of union with Christ. It's an ongoing kind of eating and drinking. It's communion in and with Christ. You don't just eat and drink Jesus once. You don't just pray the prayer, agree with the Bible once, and then go on with your other life ambitions, never con to consider your soul again. No, you keep feeding your heart on the meaning of Jesus' person and work. But Jesus is a taste many refuse to acquire. Without a taste for Jesus, these crowds fail the test of faith. They're failing the test of faith here. That's our seventh and final point, the test of faith, verses 60 to 71. 
When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who there were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back, reverse repentance. They turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was going to betray him, one of the twelve. Many disciples fail the test of faith. As a way of following Jesus that still does not lead to any learning at all, much less to salvation from sin's power in this life or its penalty in hell. Many of his disciples, his followers, grumbled about what they had heard him saying about his body being true food and blood, true drink. They were offended at it. It was too gross, too weird, too otherworldly, too hard to understand, too countercultural. So what does Jesus do? Does he take the edge off? No. No, he does not. He keeps doubling down on his bodily death and resurrection, and that tests people. You think eating my flesh is hard to swallow? There's more where that came from. What if you see me, who you think is only Mary and Joseph's son, what if you see me ascending to reign over God's kingdom at his right hand? What then? Then you're really going to struggle. How will you handle that if you can't swallow, swallow it when I say eat, and, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Trying to understand Jesus with a merely human, this-worldly mindset, totally impossible. Can't do it. Human reasoning alone, your assumptions alone, never going to help you understand Jesus because he didn't come to confirm those. All your mere sinful humanity wants from Jesus is a never-ending succession of bread bombs. That's all your flesh wants from him. Free lunch for life. Make my life in this world awesome. But Jesus' teaching is not earthly or human. It is from God's spirit and shares the character and nature of God's spirit. Maybe that's why it's hard for us to swallow. Jesus didn't come to meet our expectations of him. He came to save us from our wrong expectations about who he should be. So his word can save your soul, but only if you trust him for who he says he is. And he knew there were many in that crowd who did not believe, did not trust him for who he said he is. Salvation doesn't work how you think it should work, does it? Jesus didn't come to meet your expectations of how salvation should work. It's hard to hear from Jesus, isn't it? And that's the reason no one comes to him unless they do so as a gift from God the Father. The real gospel is so counterintuitive to our minds, so unexpected, so easily misunderstood, so against the grain of all of our assumptions that unless the Father gives you understanding, you will spin your wheels and seethe against it in your heart. Even if Jesus himself is the one evangelizing you. 
And many did in verse 66. They turned back. You see here very clearly, grumbling leads to stumbling. You grumble about the way salvation works long enough, and you will stumble your way into hell. Don't do that. Don't let that be you. Seems like such alienating teaching, doesn't it? And so we, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, why don't you explain it better? Dumb it down. Don't alienate your base. The truth is he is explaining it. The problem is not the explanation. The problem is the unwillingness and inability of people to believe. Ultimately, they are unwilling to come off their own misinterpretation of Scripture, the manna of heaven from the Old Testament, and how they think Jesus should relate to that. They demand that Jesus outdo Moses in providing whole grain bread when Jesus is saying that that kind of bread is still going to leave you dead. And then what? You need the bread of eternal life. He didn't come to compete with Moses. He came to be in himself a whole different kind of bread. But the Spirit has to give that kind of understanding. Teaching was too hard for them, too unreasonable. So they turned away from following Jesus because he would not use his powers to give them the worldly pleasure and security of unlimited bread. So they just quit trying. It's like Nicodemus at the new birth. Jesus, talk normal, will you? How can I crawl back into the womb? It's like the woman at the well. Where are you going to get this water of life? Same here. How am I supposed to follow you when you're telling me to eat your flesh and drink your blood? What in the world are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about this world. Get your mind off this world. Want something better than the world. Unless you change your frame of reference, you won't ever know what he's talking about. Verse 34, the crowds had said, Sir, evermore give us this bread. Jesus actually gave it to them over the whole course of this whole conversation. And they turned their nose up at it. Yuck. We don't like that bread. No taste for the bread of life. Only a taste for their own appetites and agendas. The crowd failed the test. So what about the twelve? Peter, speaking for the twelve, passes it with fine colors that even among the twelve, unbelief was lurking in Judas's heart. Even one of the twelve, chosen by Jesus himself to be closest to Jesus in this life, he would refuse to believe. Here again, look at how close you can be to Jesus. How privileged. And yet, the deceitfulness of riches choked out the gospel in Judas's heart. But verse 71 does not end with the phrase, betray him. Verse 71 ends with the phrase, one of the twelve. And that's where the final emphasis lies for the Christian church. In other words, Christian, if one of the twelve was a devil, would it really be all that surprising if one of us were one? Don't let it be you. We have to trust Jesus for who he says he is rather than who we expected him to be. And as Edward Pierce noted, the longer you delay that business, coming to grips with who Jesus says he really is, the greater temptations you will have to get over. For though your heart now says it is too soon, yet after a few days' delay, your heart will say it is too late. 
Christ offers himself and his grace to you. He offers you life, peace, pardon, righteousness, strength, the treasures of heaven, the bread of life. And with all calls upon you to accept these offers and to take home these things to yourselves, but you by your delays, you pour contempt upon all of them. You, in effect, say there is something better than the bread of life in Christ and something of greater concern to you than salvation by Christ. Never anybody pretended that they minded the concerns of their soul, union with Christ, walking with God, making sure they're calling election too soon. Nobody complained about that. Nobody's complaining in heaven. Ah, I became a Christian too soon in life. Ah, what was I thinking? No, Edward Pierce says, many have repented that they have minded these things too late. Now, maybe all that seems a little much to you. Then again, what did you expect? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Christ, you are nothing like we would have created you to be or imagined you to be. This conversation is bracing to us. We look at how you talk and... It surprises us, kind of intimidates us, makes us wonder. So, Lord Jesus, may we know you for who you are. You are the bread of life. To know you is to live. So may we not fool ourselves into thinking we know the true Jesus when we really only know our projection of who we think you ought to be. May we know you for who you say you are in Scripture. And may we love you for you. For your sake we pray all these things. Amen.